0: racing where we won the Giro with the national team with Mara Abbott. You know, I'm winning yellow jerseys, winning overall races. And I was feeling like finally I was losing some fear and gaining experience. And I'm going, okay, I can do this. And then I had this horrific crash in the late 2010 that shattered my pelvis and I'm life flighted out unconscious with seizures and a traumatic brain injury. And that was pretty life altering. But I think that one was such a focus on the bones and you know, trying to get me back on the bike that you ignore sometimes what's happening in your head and it's really hard to diagnose head injuries or to quantify that. And the next year in 2011, I came back pretty hot when I could get back on a bike. I was very focused.
1: Welcome to the Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. We're here with Allison Tetrick in Petaluma, California. Allison got her start on a ranch. <laughs> before becoming a collegiate tennis player and then hitting the world tour of cycling and then becoming very well known in the gravel cycling world now as well and really an ambassador for the whole sport of cycling women's cycling kind of the future of where it all goes so we're going to talk about all of that and uh we always start with a really hard question which is what you had for breakfast this morning
0: (laughs) oh do i actually have to admit that (laughs) Well, for breakfast this morning, I had a, some charcuterie and cheese, some Pete's coffee, and maybe a little dash of Bailey's in it.
1: Oh, there we go. I like it. Is that a go-to breakfast?
0: <laughs> no, but that is just honestly what I had for That's breakfast good. this morning.
1: And is that good recovery food from... So this weekend you hiked up Mount Whitney, so you're not only on your bike. How are your legs feeling after a 24-mile hiking adventure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was my first hike of the year. So I thought I might as well hike 12 hours up to 14,505 feet, which wasn't that hard, but walking down has completely destroyed my legs. So the fact that we're sitting here on the couch, good luck to me actually getting up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, very good. So let's talk about growing up on a ranch. That's not something that a lot of people have done. And yeah, what was it like? What were you like as a kid? What was your environment around you like?
0: I have been very fortunate. I have amazing free-spirited parents that are very successful and athletic in their own right and had always had this dream of having a cattle ranch. My parents were high school sweethearts. Both went to UCLA. My dad played football there. My mom is a tremendous athlete. She still is out there playing tennis every day. Um, And they had wanted to have a cattle ranch. So at 22 years old, they just kept working their way up, and they raised their two daughters. I have an older sister Mm -hmm. on a ranch. We started out in Los Alamos, which is in Santa Barbara County. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I was in junior high and high school, we moved up to Redding. And so as a child, I didn't play a lot of organized sports because the closest town was at least 30 miles away. My parents definitely were not willing to be commuting me to go to soccer or gymnastics or anything like that when there was work to be done at the ranch. So we were really active, but probably not traditionally so. A lot of horseback riding, fixing fence, checking water, and letting the freedom and the space just cultivate a lot of imaginations.
1: What did the ranch look like? Like how many cattle... How many, you know, what's the staff environment like? Like what were you guys, you know, how active were you in actually helping to manage it as a kid?
0: It was basically just my parents as the staff. Yeah. From time to time they had a caretaker for help or a ranch hand, but mainly it was my parents and when there was a big roundup, they made, they called in some friends. But it was huh. the four of us. For a couple of years, my mom's parents actually lived on the property as well. And so I remember it was my job every morning, you know, you feed the chickens, you feed yeah. the horses, check on water. Same thing, water is big for cows. And so these are a couple thousand acre cattle ranches with, you know, several hundred head of beef master cows.
1: Wow. Yeah. Have you seen Biggest, is it called Biggest Little Farm, the new movie? I have and, not seen okay, that. Okay, you should check it out. I that will. It makes me think of that because it's, it's a good one. And where are your parents from?
0: My parents were both born in Northridge, yeah. which is L.A. area. And both grew up there. They yeah, like I said, they met at L.A. Baptist a high school um, there in Los Angeles, and met, and they're still going really strong and madly in love. Yeah, that's <laughs> great.
1: And then so cycling with tennis, cycling like your train, you had a a brief stint in triathlon, but your grandpa was a competitive cyclist in his masters, right, like sixties. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So my dad's father, Paul Tetrick, he was an army veteran and a contractor in the LA area. And he did a lot of buildings and things like that. And he was a runner. Um, Mm. and that's what he did. And he, after the age of 50, just couldn't run anymore. And so he saw, you know, that local group rides down there in LA and thought, I'm going to go keep up with these young guys, hops on a bike and he just found a love for cycling so he didn't start riding a bike until after the age of 50 but he did pass away last year but up until the age of 85 the guy has over 17 national titles and the master's categories and he just rode his bike every day um and he was the one that kind of elbowed me and said you know hey, Al, you should try out this whole bike racing thing and and this is after I have played tennis in college and I am working in Boston and I'm running a lot at this point. I still have a lot of competitive drive and I might mm. call him Grampy. So Grampy's yeah. going, you know, try out bike racing and, and I'm going, it looks so dorky. You know, you're yeah. wearing these brightly colored clothing, yeah. you have pads on your, on your rear end <laughs> <laughs> and your, you know, helmet hair. I'm just going, I wear tennis skirts and I like to run right. and nah, this is not for me. And he said, oh, I just just try it. Just try it. You know, you can go to the Olympics. You'll be great. Um, and I did, I went out and I, I tried a couple bike races and triathlon and, you know, and my first bike race, I basically was headed to the Olympic training center for a talent identification camp. And next thing, you know, I'm racing all over the world for the national team and professional teams. So he just was tickled to death. The guy was, um, Not the most emotional and giddy guy. You know, he's pretty serious, but he loved me a whole lot. And so cycling became our language of love together, and we really connected on it. And my grandfather was the first person I would Mm. call after races, and I would cry, and, you know, that made him a little uncomfortable. But he actually really understood that, and that kind of became our language and a really special Mm. connection to me.
1: That's really special. Getting into cycling, knowing your grandpa, you know, having... Clearly, a belief you could do it. Um, I ride my bike a lot, but I'm definitely not going to get called up for the national team, and I never was. Like you got on a bike and you're in that track fast, but you know, growing up playing tennis, tennis has some. I mean, it has a ton of endurance and strength, but not like the engine right that you need for cycling. Is that just like innate within you? Where did it come from? <laughs> genetics or <laughs>
0: There is there's is definitely <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely some genetics with that. Playing tennis. I started a little late because, you know, growing up right. on this ranch and not playing a lot of s- technically organized sports, but I think we were really active and strong. I think it also gave me a lot of you know, mental fortitude and stubbornness and maybe a little fearlessness as well. Yeah. Um, it was interesting the way I was raised. I wasn't thinking about gender barriers or what I should and shouldn't do. I just had this whole open range to go out and explore. And my dad raised really strong women and my mom's really strong. So for them, they're like, right. do whatever you set out to do, but just make sure you do your best. Mm-hmm. With, you know. And so for me, when I actually did start playing team sports, I'm like, I'm going to get a full ride to college and I'm going to play tennis because that's what I want to do. Yeah. And people go, you can't do that. You just started and you're a freshman in high school. I'm like, Well, watch me, you know, so not having those barriers or stereotypes that kind of hold yeah. you back. Um, I think a lot of that's how I was raised and growing up with that freedom and open space mm. to develop. And I do think my parents are incredible athletes, and my my dad's father is, is showing that you know at that right. age to be able to be performing and having the lung capacity or the VO two max or you know all those. No, he
1: did the same thing. He just got on his bike in the in his fifties, right? Same as you, yeah, entering tennis and as a teenager.
0: Yeah, and tennis yeah. is a is a skill sport, so yeah. I did always right. feel like I was on my my back heels in the sport. You know, you're playing women who have been. You know practicing this sport for 10 15 years you know nice. longer than i had and i did always feel like i was dropped <laughs> that's a cycling term yeah. you know you just feel you feel like you're kind of just behind but when i got on a bike maybe i didn't have the skill set for fast ascending or a switchbacks on a single track mountain bike but what i did have is the harder i pedaled the faster my bike went and in tennis i never felt the more tennis balls i hit the better i got yeah. sometimes it just went in my head and then make me want to cry yeah.
1: <laughs> in cycling how have you i've heard you talk about this of like i mean you just did it here of identifying which parts you're good at and which parts might not be your natural strength cause you haven't done it like how do you think about playing to your strengths like as you became a pro cyclist like understanding what you were good at and channeling that into like race strategy or kind of how you viewed your success or
0: Yeah, I think as an athlete, and I think it actually applies to real world as well. A lot of people want to focus on, you know, you're not good at these things. You know, maybe it's your manager at work or yourself or your wife or whoever is like, you are not good at these things. So yes, you should work on your weaknesses in case you need them. But I also think training your strengths. So knowing I'm good at solo wins, good at time trialing, good at a lot of power for a long duration of time. I might lose time in technical sections, and maybe these are things I'm not good at, but if I don't train my strengths, then I mean, how am I going to win, and I want to train my strengths, and then, so I can win with that, and also work on my weaknesses in case my strengths aren't working that day, so I think you have to balance it, but I, I would encourage people not to ignore their strengths, and still cultivate, foster, train your strengths, because at the end of the day, I mean. Yeah. Those lead you to success. And that's
1: life and sports and everything else, right? Yeah. Talk us through your career as a cyclist and kind of the progression it went through. And then, you know, your crash, we've got the magazine over here where you tell that story in bicycling in 2010.
0: Yeah, I started racing, like I said, pretty quickly, maybe within three months of ever starting a bike race. Which by starting a bike race, I mean, I pinned my number upside down, (laughs) didn't know how to clip in and would get dropped on every start line because I couldn't figure out how to clip in fast enough. (laughs) So three months later, I'm racing in Europe for the national team and it was a huge trajectory and it was definitely trial by fire, which meant a lot of failure, some success, but a lot of fear and oh my goodness, what am I doing? And then... What
1: was the team environment like there? How much pressure, being new to the sport, what did that feel like in Europe on the biggest biggest stage?
0: I was there as a development role. So I think I was really fortunate when I first started racing to have this incredible group of women that were confident enough in their own Palomars and their own achievements that they were really willing to help me. Sometimes it felt a little bit like hazing, but (laughs) they they would give me roles and team directors that invested time into me and coaches and a whole list of professional teams that would believe in me even though I was relatively very new actually. So they were willing to dedicate that time in that development role. So I think I was more worried about disappointing those individuals that believed in me than the result itself and with that it made me dig really deep and find some incredible results and also fail pretty hard as well so I I started racing 2009 and 2010 so this is pretty new into my career but it was probably one of the best years that I had had racing where we won the Giro with the national team with Mara Abbott you know, I'm winning yellow jerseys, winning overall races. And I was feeling like finally I was losing some fear and gaining experience. And I'm going, okay, I can do this. And then I had this horrific crash in the late 2010 that shattered my pelvis. And I'm life flighted out unconscious with seizures and a traumatic brain injury. And that was pretty life altering. But I think that one was such a focus on the bones and you know trying to get me back on the bike that you ignore sometimes what's happening in your head and it's really hard to diagnose head injuries or to quantify that and the next year in 2011 i came back pretty hot when i could get back on a bike i was very focused um probably too much so very focused on external validation goals thinking olympics thinking national championships whatever it was and I went to the Pan American games for the national team and represented them in the time trial and had a flute crash, hit my head again, which was within a year, like about 10 months of the previous traumatic brain injury. And then that was just lights out. So that one was really not as traumatic because no broken bones, I had a scuffed knee, but I just hit my head the wrong way. And that set me back for years. And that's something I deal with every day.
1: Yeah. And what did that look like? That Cause like you said, it's not something that you can see. It's like, like a broken bone is very easy to diagnose. And what did that, you know, after the first crash and then after the second, like the coming back, you know, as you just said, you, something you still.
0: Yeah. After the first crash, I think because the broken bone was so traumatic that that's what you focus on because you can't walk, you're in a wheelchair, you're bedridden. So you're focused on that. And you know, you're on pain meds, you're also your life's turned upside down. And so I think a lot of that was just muted because I was so focused on coming back. And then when the second one happened, like I said, I think it was just a bloody knee, but I hit my head, but then I can't drive, can't read. I went into a kind of a dark spiral of depression and disorientation And a lot of changes had happened, but those probably had happened prior. It just wasn't as noticeable just because a lot of times, you know, just like in life, we can mask things with being busy, with trying to make your deadline, to try to win a race and be the best you can be that you mask sometimes what's going on. So the second one made me really have to slow down because I couldn't move. I couldn't live by myself. I couldn't, do what I used to do and so that caused a whole nother part of the recovery process
1: and in the recovery from that what's between kind of skills that you had to learn and people who could help what helped get you back
0: I think mainly my family of course that's a safe place to go which is really scary when you feel like you just gained your independence you're a professional athlete you want to be invincible and then to go back to people that you need to rely on and a lot of times that's gonna be family and friends that truly care about you um what i found in that time when you are that weak and vulnerable and need recovery sometimes you want to go to the people that tell you the answer you want to hear and vulnerability is like blood in the water for people. And so success, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and so you might then rely on people that you shouldn't. And so the the second one, I I went back to the basics, which is, you know, my family and the loved ones that I know, love me regardless of if I'm a professional athlete, if I'm valedictorian, if I'm successful in business, if I'm married, you know, all these things.
1: So today, you know, so that's eight years Mm -hmm. later. So how do you feel now compared to, you know, the couple years after?
0: I feel like much more of a complete person with a better perspective on life. Yeah, dealing with a head injury and the changes that it causes in your brain is something I still deal with day to day, but to understand it in a more comprehensive way is really helpful. And also, it's about separating your identity from you know, the gold star that you get when you do something well. So those external validations are are that. And so separating results from overall happiness and satisfaction with a balanced life. And I'm not saying I do that well every day, but I make sure to step back, you know, and go through my checklist. Like, are you healthy? Are you having fun? Are you being balanced and, you know, putting the things that matter the most as a priority? Or are you still fixated on some sort of a result that you need for your checkbox.
1: So now on the, the next step of your cycling career, you're still out winning races and you're still out having fun and you seem to have a nice hybrid of being able to do both. How do you think about that at this point of your kind of athletic career of when are you racing and when are you out for the experience or is it always some combo of both? (laughs)
0: No, I think now what's important for me is to not always go out and race to win. I think entering gravel and you've dabbled in it now and you're finding, you know, the joys of being able to go out and ride your bike competitively hard and challenge yourself and still feel good at the end of the day, whether it's because you're drinking a beer with your friends or you rode your bike more feet in elevation or distance than you ever have before. So for me, it's about finding a challenge pushing myself, making sure I'm doing my best, but also keeping it realistic and making sure I'm having fun and I'm enjoying it. Because I also remind myself if I drive and go to some gravel event or some bike race and I'm not having a good day being like, you know, you chose to be here, this was your choice. (laughs) You have free will and you drove yourself here and you're gonna go and do this. So enjoy it to the best of your ability and enjoying it for me might be going for the win. Or it might be riding back in the party bus with my friends and stopping a lot and taking photos for Instagram.
1: Right. You've done a lot of the biggest races and some of the smaller ones locally as well. Like do you have, for people kind of getting started or who have done a few gravel rides, advice on or favorites that people should look to? Or is it all just the...
0: (laughs) Which is interesting about gravel, which I guess road has as well, but what's interesting about gravel is there's all sorts of different kinds of terrain and different environments and different structure and gravel's different. You know, it's gravel in Kansas is different than Lincoln, Nebraska, which is different than riding around a volcano in Iceland. So they're all very different. For me, it's about the adventure, the exploring, going on roads you've never been on with the coolest like-minded people you've ever met. So my advice is finding one that inspires you, finding something that you go, hey, you know, I always wanted to ride around the Cascades on my gravel bike, five days camping, Oregon Trail yeah. gravel grinder it is, or Dirty Kanza is so popular, I want to go see how I stack up against that, go to Dirty Kansas. or I would love to ride around a volcano in Iceland, mm. go do it. And, you know, How
1: hard was the Oregon Trail? I have some friends who did that.
0: I didn't race it, <laughs> so I days, had a right? blast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot had, of miles. It was a lot of miles. I I never ridden my gravel bike five days in a row like that before, and honestly, I was on the party bus. I mean, I had a, I had a flask in my camelback. I had a puffy jacket in case it was cold. I mean, I just was having a blast because I needed to take the pressure off of myself yeah. and. I got to camp with my friends hang out with some loved ones and see the most stunning views that oregon definitely has to offer Mm. so i loved it i did love also not racing it
1: (laughs) belgian waffle ride um i listened to your crashing and finish even finishing that after crashing you crashed twice right (laughs) yeah
0: that was gnarly and that's that can get real racy and really hard you know belgian waffle ride is really hard and that's not a pure gravel. I mean, I ride a Specialized Roubaix on that with 30-millimeter tubeless tires. So I'm riding slick tires. You want, you know, to race it. Now, I think if you wanted to be more comfortable on some of those technical sections, yeah. a gravel setup would be amazing. You're just not as fast on the road. Mm. That's a challenging one for sure.
1: <laughs> How do you manage fear after having a head injury? So Some of these are obviously, they're not easy doing a ride like that on 30 millimeter tires is certainly not easy
0: I operate on a high dose of fear just in life in general right. <laughs> I'm a pretty anxious person so I have a very healthy respect for gravity
1: yeah
0: it depends on the race situation and what I'm in sometimes I have to give myself a mantra to calm down also you know I'll just tell myself you know ride your own race stay safe don't take a risk, or if I need to be like, toughen up, you can do yeah. this deep breath, you know, you know, you are a professional, you can do this. But most of the time it's it's about giving myself grace to be able to be afraid. And if I do need to kind of pull the plug and unclip even and take a deep breath, then I, I will do that because I've raced at a high level long enough that I I don't have a lot of race lives left where I need to go into that fear box where I'm terrified. And I'm okay with that did take a little therapy (laughs) but it was basically she asked me if you choose your health over results or your safety over results are you okay with that and for me absolutely yes i am a hundred percent unclipping losing not finishing if it's pushing me over the limit and then what i've learned with that is i can ride at a very high level and operate on a little bit of fear but also i think that's okay and at Belgian waffle last year, after the crash, I did, I just unclipped sat down for a bit and just needed to regroup and realize I was no longer racing. And I was going to join the party bus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cycling is a funny sport. Cause we can get so obsessed with gear and I am a hundred percent guilty with this. I'll spend way more time on my gear than I do on training. <laughs> so talk about the you know, you've been at this for a long time. So, for people who are competitive, you look at, you sign up for whatever you sign up for. This could be any endurance athlete, but the mix of nutrition, training, strength, gear, how do you prioritize those? How do you think about the relation between those and kind of the importance level?
0: I think if we're making this sport accessible for everyone, You know i think one thing we do wrong in cycling sometimes is to get a little gear heavy so before i get gear heavy i will say maybe you will have a better day if you have better gear but also don't let gear and the price and you know a new mortgage on your house (laughs) get you out of the sport but i do like to control my controllables so i coming from a time trial background for road i think preparation is key Training for me is the easy part. I love riding my bike. For me, the hard part's resting and recovering. The rest of the time, I just love riding my bike all day if I could. So that's the easy part, making sure you can train and be prepared that way. And then you can get into the gear. I want to be have a good bike fit. I use Retool technology. I am sponsored by Specialized. I race for Specialized. So I ride, I think, some of the best bikes in the world. Right. So for gravel, I ride a Diverge with a Roval CLX 32 tires, earth wheels. And then right now my new thing are these 42. I like, I'm getting wider and wider. I'm I'm with you. (laughs) I'm getting wider and wider on the tires and they are amazing. The Pathfinder 42s is what I'm riding. And another game changer this year for me has been the, I put electronic shifting on my gravel bike. So I'm riding the new SRAM eTap. Access force one by so a 44 up front and a 1050 in the back So they call it the mullet. So I mean that 50 it's like a party, right? Like I mean I can get up some really steep stuff and people ask me all the time Like do you really need that 50? I used it yesterday. (laughs) I'm like I love that 50 So I think that gearing really helps. Um, I think for gravel Particularly the one by is fantastic. I can still with that 10 I mean I can go really fast on the road And then having 12 speeds in the back is great. A one-by also is great for muddy conditions. You're not shearing off your front derailleur as mud gets clogged in. It's just one less thing to break. And the wireless electronic, amazing. And then the next thing you get into, I mean, there's the Diverge also has a, they call it a future shock. And so there's a shock in the headset. So when the road gets really bumpy, uh, smoother's faster, you know? So if you have less fatigue in your shoulders and hands, you can push out more Watts later because you're a little more rested and less fatigued from the trauma of the road. (laughs) And I, so I think the bike really makes a difference tires. Of course, you know, those, like, like I said, these 42s are so much more comfortable for me than what I was, you know, just, I love them and they're really fast still in, in smoother conditions. So I think that matters a lot. And then another thing, as far as it going into nutrition, currently I'm riding this camelback chase vest. So a lot of times camelbacks were known for mountain biking, but for gravel with these long distance, the road is also pretty chunky. It's may not be comfortable grabbing bottles. So hydration is really key. And the camelback chase vest is made. It's kind of a mix between your traditional mountain bike vest and then a running vest. So it's still short enough where you can reach your rear pockets of your Jersey. Mm. So it's actually just made for gravel and it's really great to help me stay hydrated. And then you go into your preparation for nutrition. And I think that one of my mottos for nutrition is, you know, eat and drink early and often. And a lot of times we start an event and it always starts fast, right? Yeah, and, that's always the hardest part, the first hour. Yeah, and so you're nervous and you might not be eating and drinking enough because you're still in a pack of 500 a 1,000 people and people are passing and everyone feels great so that's where the chase fest helps too, because I don't have to grab a bottle. I can just be drinking out of my hydration bladder and I try to do about 250 calories an hour. So whether that comes from my fluid, which I tend to put goo, roctane in my pack. So every time I'm drinking it actually has calories in it and electrolytes and nutrients that I need Um, because I think that's like killing two birds with one stone. Some people, prefer water, I think the yeah. Roctane is great because if I drink a whole bottle, I mean, you're getting hundred calories in a bottle, 150. So then you just need one gel, one Stroop Waffle, you know, yeah. something like that to, to maintain. But a lot of times people ignore the first two hours of nutrition and then you're constantly playing catch up the rest of the day. So drinking and eating early and often, and depending on your body size, I'd recommend 200 to 250 calories an hour. Yeah. What
1: about the kind of the morning of a big race, or the night before, or the day? Uh, is it two days before? Like, what are you thinking about to get your glycogen stores up, or whatever you need to do to perform at the level you want?
0: I think I haven't done any sort of carbo loading or found it Works. necessary. Yes. Um, for me, hydration matters a lot. So I have been. My new thing is. I mean, I have a lot of obligations sometimes when I go to these events. So if I'm doing forums, I'm at my sponsor's booths or talks leading rides. So I just started wearing my chase vest around, even in my street clothes, just so I'm reminded to constantly be drinking Hmm. because a lot of times it's hot and you're out in the sun, you're nervous, you're going to the expo or you're packing and building your bike, um, things like that. So to hydrate is really important. I tend to try to eat an early dinner the night before and nothing out of the ordinary that whole week. I'm just making sure I'm drinking enough staying hydrated. So I'm flushing out anything that's in my system and getting enough sleep because sometimes, you know, you're traveling into event you go out with your friends or you just get your, take a red eye because you right. have to go to work, you know, <laughs> so there's, there, you're tired. So I'm trying not to get sick. So I think hydration and sleep helps a lot. And then I try to eat just normal clean diet like I usually do minus my breakfast this morning <laughs> um, and, and you know a lot of times these races start early in the morning you know because they're longer and so i try to eat early to get that digestive system going so five to six i I'll like yeah. to eat dinner and that's when i'll eat a fair amount you know i want to make sure i have enough but just a normal dinner and then as far as breakfast it just depends on your motivation to get up early i don't like getting up early Uh, When I used to do so if you're looking at bike racing like a cyclocross race where you're starting full gas And it's one hour or a time trial same thing, you know full gas one hour I would always try to eat three hours before because then it's clearing your system, and you're not regurgitating breakfast but Dirty Kansas starts at 6 in the morning. I am not getting up at 3 and how far is that 200 miles? Yeah, (laughs) I got up at 5 I did almost miss a start, but I like sleep. So I got up at five and I literally think I had three donut holes, a cup of coffee and went, but I think if you eat a good dinner the night before, then if you don't want to fill up your stomach too much, you can have a breakfast. It's maybe only 200 to 300 calories. Coffee for me is a yeah a main thing. We have to have coffee and then go to the race. But then if you do that, you need to start eating in the first hour, even though you're not hungry. Hmm. So that's kind of how I do it so I don't have to get up early. But if the race doesn't start till 10 and you have plenty of time, by all means, you can eat a yeah. b- bigger breakfast. But some of that is, actually all of it is very individual-based. But I don't think you need to be nervous about getting a huge breakfast in because a lot of times I just found that gave me GI issues. You yeah. know, your just stomach is right. sloshing around and then you don't want to eat because you have heartburn or... Just an unhappy yeah. tummy. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that in no. the middle of a race. No, so but then if you do that, you need to eat within that first hour. Eat and drink, which most people don't yeah. want to do.
1: On the training side, you're doing these big, you know, long distance events. But how regimented are you in, you know, to walk just quickly through like a typical week or whatever a training block in the months leading up to a race that you're actually going to go race. <laughs>
0: I think one mistake a lot of people make is they sign up for something that's going to challenge them, like something like Dirty Kansas, which is really daunting 206 miles, or it's their first century or something. And you go, Well, then I need to go ride a century. I'm going to tell you, I don't ride 200 miles, but at Dirty Kansas. And maybe usually my year leading up to Kansas, I'll only do one other long long ride, which was the last couple of years, Belgian waffle ride, which is about 127, yeah. I think. So I don't think you need to go and do that event distance to be able to complete the event. And so I think you, what you need to do is we you structure your training is building up to distances and working on your nutrition and then letting it go for the longer ones, just mm-hmm. pacing yourself and building up that endurance. My training I still train like I'm racing road races just because that's what I've done the last 11 years. Right. I do a little higher intensity, you know, start off, take a little break sometimes. <laughs> and then I, you know, start off some like short, high intensity VO two maxes around January, go into some longer, like kind of threshold training and then just jump into events. I try not to do much structured training now because I did it for so long and I love training, but I also just, if I want to go get a Strava QOM, I go and get a Strava QOM and that's kind of how I do my training. And then also twice a week, I have a group ride here in Marin County, like clockwork if I'm home, which is very rare, but if I'm home, like I will never miss my Wednesday and Saturday group ride, Mm. which gives me a good hour and a half hour 45 of really high intensity race pace. Yeah, I do that year round. I just, which ride is that? On Wednesdays I do the Wednesdays ride out of the Java Hut and on mm-hmm. Saturdays it's called the Roasters Ride. Yeah, I've heard of the
1: Roasters Ride. It's the same exact yeah. <laughs> loop. Both
0: of them the same exact loop. Pretty much the same exact people.
1: Yeah. Do you worry about safety on those, like the group rides, with I'm curious like people who show up who are great athletes who maybe haven't done I haven't done the Roasters ride, but when you're around people who might not be as experienced.
0: I've done that ride probably, you know, one thousand seven hundred and eighty six times or more. Right. So <laughs>
1: Like, I know this ride. I
0: know the ride. I know the guys and I also know what wheel I want to follow. And I like to remind them that I'm royalty on the ride. <laughs> <laughs> so I have those guys wrapped around my finger. No. <laughs> but I think it is important to be safe and yeah. I have even before Kansas it's my thing to do in Kansas on a Saturday. Wednesday, I I do my group ride and then I fly out that night because mm. I just don't want to miss my ride. It wakes, you know, it's good leg speed. Yeah. And, but it is Wednesday That's before Kansas. Ride. I'm yeah. going, you guys better not crash me out today. Yeah. But if you can trust a wheel in front of you and I do get nervous if somebody new is on the ride, I'm like, who brought this guy? Anyone know? Him? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the more people, the merrier. But I do want to make yeah. sure I trust the wheel in front of me and, and stay safe. Yeah.
1: What about building a career as a professional cyclist? Like what that looks like? Because there's not necessarily like a playbook for you know the managing your sponsorships, finding sponsorships, picking which events you enter. Like how, what does that look like? What have you learned? If you're gonna give advice to your younger self, anything you would do differently for people who are coming up in any endurance sport?
0: Yeah, it is interesting. But I did start as a road racer, so when you sign with a professional team, you get a box of sponsors that come with that contract. So I was lucky enough to work with some incredible teams that are all still around and thriving, and through those teams and those box of sponsors, meet a lot of people in the industry and meet partners that once I did become a gravel racer where I could pick and choose, I had exactly who I wanted to work with and represent companies I really believe in. So I think I'm very fortunate that way. I made amazing connections and I have sponsors and partners that believe in me, not only as an athlete, but as a human being. And that means a lot to me and it's not something I take lightly. I do believe I invested a lot into them and they invested a lot into me. So it's been a very amazing journey through wins and losses. I don't think I would do anything different that way, but as a younger athlete, I think the main thing is to not have your handout being entitled for sponsors and product, but really go out and get on start lines and, and race your bike and don't be afraid to take chances and lose and keep racing your bike day in, day out if that's what you love to do. And then remember that, Being an athlete isn't just about winning races. It's about who you are off the bike. And that's just not about your Instagram and that you take a good photo. It's about investing in your community and building people up and not being threatened by potential competitors and really trying to make it a healthy community. Mm -hmm. And then also off the bike is being a good teammate. And so with road racing, you have teammates. So a lot of times maybe I had a bad year and you didn't have the results you wanted, but you're looking for a contract, but you have a couple teammates that they're like, you know what? She was always positive. She made me breakfast when I had crashed <laughs> and, you know, or she went to that sponsor event that no one wanted to in Las Vegas. And right. you know, that adds value as an athlete too. So right. I think it's just about not being entitled and not being afraid to buy things and pay your way to races and to, figure out a way to make it work, to make yourself visible and get the results that ultimately are what you're passionate about. And then also creating a, a bigger package that adds value, not for sponsors or selling bikes, but just adds value to our overall cycling community and world. I right. think that's really important.
1: Yeah. We were talking about this before. This is the authenticity of a person. It's not just in the sport. Like you said, it's the whole person and that's what people want to gravitate around too. What about on the side of, women's sports female cycling progression of gravel like where you're seeing progress where you'd like to see things go you know, we're talking about sponsorships like how's that all going on the women's side you know some of the gravel races have done a hard like one-to-one push which i think is super exciting to see um yeah curious what your perspective is
0: I think women's cycling has definitely been growing uh, throughout the years that I've been competing in the sport and there's still a lot of room for improvement of course and it's a hard enigma to, to tackle because it's the chicken or the egg the sport needs more visibility and but what comes first more races more visibility more money I mean it's it's a very difficult circle to get into but I think we're have some incredible leaders and sponsors and industry partners that are really pushing equality and opportunity for women in the sport. And I love to be a part of that and to watch it grow. Like I said, there's a lot of room for improvement. Something I do love about the gravel racing is their mass start events, you know, so it does feel just equal Mm -hmm. and fun. I get a ride with whoever during the day and that's a blast. And also for the men that line up, they can see how they, you know, they can ride with the world's fastest women. And right. I mean, and, and these long distance events, women are incredible. They're we're, yeah. like, we are so strong the longer the distance goes and that's, that's just shown in science. So that's super fun for me. And I also love working with people like Christy Moan, who's with dirty Kanza, who's, you know, keeps pushing to get more women into gravel and Rebecca rush has done an incredible job. So I just think that there's so much opportunity to keep pushing that equality opportunity in gravel because it's so inclusive. And then also on the road side with the world tour happening since I had been racing and then now we're, we're pushing to minimum salaries and things like that. It's incredible, but there's a lot of work to be done and also just for visibility, whether we can get those road races on TV, like the men and things like that, so. It's an exciting time, but it's not something that you want to take a deep breath and rest and say, oh, things are getting better. No, <laughs> you know, you need to keep pushing about, forward.
1: And youth sports? What are you seeing in cycling? Like where for all the parents like me out there that are.
0: <laughs> I mean, NICA is doing yeah. an incredible job. So if you're not familiar with NICA, it's a high school mountain bike league that it's mainly about getting kids on bikes and making it fun. So, yes, there are races, but there's different categories And it is really amazing how many high school girls are out there racing mountain bikes and looking at Kate Courtney, who just won the overall, you know, she's world champion last year and won overall UCI World Cup. You know, she started in NICA here in Fairfax in Mm -hmm. Marin, and she's an incredible story of a lot of hard work, obviously a natural gifted athlete, but to start in that grassroots area.
1: Right. I mean, six, what, six or seven years ago, she was not even riding, (laughs) not even racing. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And so there's some, um, you know, incredible programs like NICA. And I know USA Cycling as well is is really pushing to make sure the development pipeline is is ready for those athletes. And we just came back from UCI World Championships and Megan Jostrob won junior worlds. You have Chloe Dargart in the women's winning the time trial for elite women, and just two years ago she was winning junior worlds. So to show that our development pipeline for USA Cyclings going well and just to keep investing in that future too.
1: You in 10 years, what's cycling look like? What's, what are you doing?
0: <laughs> Ooh, that's a hard question. Now I feel like I'm in therapy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 10 years, I'm going to always ride my bike. Um, I love riding my bike, the sense of adventure. I am definitely falling in love with the exploration side of things and the travel into more remote you know, unexplored yeah. places, at least for me, we were talking about at the beginning of this hiking up Mount Whitney. I mean, I will be doing, you know, I'm going to have the John Muir trail on my calendar. Yeah. I'm going to have some long hikes and mountain climbing and riding. I've done a backpacking trip, bike packing trip in Kyrgyzstan last year or something, you know, where you can kind of get off the beaten path and see some incredible sights. So, the bike to me isn't always going to be about results and racing. It's going to be about exploration and adventure and whether or not that's just exploration within myself riding down the yeah. coast of California or it's exploration into some desert somewhere to figure it out. I think Do you have it's, role
1: models you look to there that like 10 years ahead who have taken a path that is appealing? It's always interesting of like where does career as a professional athlete, like where does it evolve to?
0: Yeah, I loved um, Rebecca Rush. I know I just mentioned right. her because she's so invested in getting more women out on gravel and mountain bikes. And she's an incredible event in her hometown of Ketchum, Idaho. And Rebecca was one of the first people to tell me to do Dirty Kansas and get me into gravel racing. And once again, it takes somebody that's very confident and secure in who they are to bring competition and get more people out there. And so if I could make an impact like Rebecca has in the world, um, even the smallest amount, I would be really excited because she is an incredible human being with a heart of gold. And she's able to use the bike to inspire people to raise money for important causes that she's passionate about. And she always brings back investment to our local community and to me that's so important
1: yeah and what about you kind of the off the bike so you've got your master's in clinical psychology you do work with amgen how do you see all those pieces fitting together
0: i have i've been very fortunate to have an incredible job throughout my career and i have always worked pretty much full time outside of the sport of cycling and those stories don't always make instagram but it's something i'm really proud of, too, because when it comes down to a race or something and you think, oh, I should have trained more, I should have done this, but I had too much work or too many conference calls or business travel. But then I also think, well, if I crash or don't win, I also have another job. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be okay. So I'm hoping as the more complete package of who I'm becoming and who I can evolve to be, it's still somebody that can have a good career doing things I believe in whether that's for a large corporation for incredible causes like fighting cancer and heart health, or is it and using the bike, I think yeah. to be able to be a vessel of power for that. And so I think within those 10 years, that's going to continue to morph in as one more big package instead of two separate lives. But yeah. it's been an incredible experience. That's
1: Inspiring. What about finding balance and you know, I was just spying on your Strava. You, you ride like, what, you've already ridden 10,000 miles this year? Or is that your goal for the year? Is that the auto goal that it sets?
0: Oh, I, I think I'm over 10,000. <laughs> you're over <yeah>. 10,000. <laughs> okay,
1: yeah. so I've ridden 20% of you. <laughs> and that which is that's amazing. Like while you're working, how do you make all those pieces fit? How do you find time?
0: i'm just might not be very social at (laughs) night (laughs) i think it is just about structuring your time and your priorities and we all make time for things that are important to us and riding my bike is one way that i can release some of my pent-up energy and luckily it makes me fast to be able to compete at some of these events but also it helps me focus so when i get off the bike i can get back to work and more clear and driven to what I need to do. So it's a lot of time management, being very efficient and, you know, also making sure to make time for family, baby showers and right. things like that. Yeah. So prioritizing cuz I don't ever want to be one of those people that puts training over family or friends when they need you or you should be a part of that too. Yeah.
1: All right. I think about this a lot with Prokit with what we're doing is Becoming a really good athlete, it can start to feel very elite very quickly. Mm -hmm. For the average person, you see an elite athlete and you're like, I can't be like them because they're so much further ahead of me. How do we keep running, cycling, other sports that, like you said, help free people's mind, get people outside, get people healthy in general? How do you make it inviting and bring people in? Like, I mean, Gravel's kind of done that in some ways. So what, yeah, I don't know, have you seen any ingredients that work for helping us all kind of get out and do what we love?
0: When I was racing professional road for 10 years, you're racing at the highest level in the world and you're doing events that people just watch on TV. And I f- really loved it, but I did feel like I was racing and somewhat on a pedestal away from everybody because you're not really connecting with your fans or even your supporters, people that make it possible. And so what I love about gravel racing is that it's very inclusive because I get to line up at these races with 2,000 of my new best friends, and we all get to experience the same day together. Whether you're two hours in front of me or two hours behind me or just trying to finish or trying to win, everyone at the end of the day can – have a beer, slice of pizza, burger, whatever. Right. And talk about the war stories and their day and you and I actually did the same course. Yeah. And yeah. so you remember that river crossing or that steep climb and just because one person goes up it faster than the other doesn't mean it wasn't hard for both parties. And so I think about making the sport inclusive is making it about the adventure and the completion and the successful feeling you have at the end of the day and not about results i don't think gravel racing should be about who wins i think it should be about challenging yourself with whatever capacity you wanted to to that day and to celebrate life and riding bikes so i think that's why Yes, equipment matters a ton and preparation matters and all of that. But let's not sit there and be like, well, that's a really technical section. You know, be cr- right. you know, if you want to walk it, just lock walk it, it. <laughs> you know, or if, if you had to stop because you were cramping, stop like it, you know, and it's okay. And so we don't make it where there's this huge barrier to entry because you're female or because you don't look like everybody else or your bike isn't as fancy. Let's just get out there and ride and challenge ourselves and be better for it.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.